Good afternoon, my friends. Today we are going to attempt to conclude Psalm 121. I'm going to apologize in advance for my less than strong voice. <clears throat> I'm doing the best I can. And the important thing is that we're able to study Torah together. So in Kapitel Kufraf Aleph, in Psalm 121, there's a lot of focus on God's guardianship. We open the psalm with a desire to find God's help. We were looking for, for assistance. May I and your Ezri. Where will my help come from, we said. And then in verse 2, we said, Ezri, Mim Hashem, our help, our assistance comes from on high. In verse 3, we said, Al yitin la meitraglecha. God will not allow you to falter. And from verse 4 onwards, we hear about God guarding us. I'm sure you've watched these episodes, or you'll go back and watch them. It's really important to appreciate that each verse in this particular psalm builds on the verse before. So in verse 4, after saying that God will not allow your foot to falter, we say, he never sleeps. Who? Who never sleeps? Shemer Yisrael, the guardian of Israel. This is the first time in the Shia Malot that God is identified as our guardian. It's not the only time. We'll be hearing about this on the go forward. But here, God is identified as our guardian, as our Shomer. Verse 5 repeats that idea. Hashem Shomrecha. God is your guardian. God is protecting you. And then we talked about Hashem Tzilcha. He's your shade. Nothing's going to harm you. The sun won't harm you by day. The moon's misfortune won't strike you at night. Everything's going to be fine. So we've already said that God is the guardian of Israel. We've already said, In verse 3 we said, Your guardian doesn't slumber. In verse 4, we emphasize your guardian doesn't slumber or sleep. Shomer Yisrael, the guardian of Israel. In verse 5, we open and we say, Hashem Shomrecha. And verse 6 is a continuation of that. We've already thrice identified God as our guardian. And in multiple ways, we've already talked about the idea, the notion that God is guarding us which lands us at the doorstep of verse 7 and 8, the concluding verses of, of this awesome ascendancy, Psalm 121, the second chapter of the Shah Malot. And it opens with what seems like re-emphasis or even redundancy. Hashem 
God is going to guard you from any evil. Malana, what were we talking about before when we said, We said, Your foot's not going to falter. So, what did that mean? If not, that God's going to guard you. We said, That the guardian of Israel doesn't slumber or sleep. Well, the guardian of Israel, being ever awake or never asleep, is protecting us, obviously, from something which could harm us. As we say clearly in the next verse, God is your guardian. You're not going to be harmed. So God is protecting us from harmful things. And now in verse 7, we've already spoken of God guarding us, protecting us, shielding us from harmful things, from things which could cause us pain. In verse 7, we say, God's going to shield you from any evil. Which evil was he shielding us from before? And what is David HaMelech? What is King David adding now? He seems to be speaking in riddles. And in case that's not strong enough a statement, David HaMelech repeats now for emphasis, He will guard your soul. As, as in what? Before he was guarding my body and now he guards my soul. What guardianship does a soul need that a body doesn't need? By now we've already spoken of God as guarding us no less than five times. So verse 8 finishes off. Hashem yishmer God will guard your going and your coming. From now and for all time. From now and forever. So before it wasn't forever. Before it was only in the moment. These are the kinds of questions that I started to ask myself when I began to prepare the Tehillim, these verses, to try to explain them to you. I first have to understand them myself. And I really couldn't, I couldn't make sense of this. What, what is being told to us in verses 7 and 8 that we didn't know already? Suppose verses 7 and 8 uh, wouldn't show up on the screen. Suppose Psalm 121 would only be five verses long, or six verses long. It would say, you will not falter. Your guard doesn't slumber. It would emphasize, he doesn't slumber or sleep. Show me, Yisrael. And then we would hear, in the third verse in a row, Hashem, Shemrecha, for the fourth time I hear, God is guarding us. He's shielding us on our right. And maybe if we needed to have some eternity, we could have finished off verse 6 with the words, And I bet you wouldn't know the difference. Bet if I cut and pasted, give you a doctored Tillam, you wouldn't know the difference. I mean, I would, because I've been saying this chapter of Tillam since I'm a child, and it's... It's actually a, an important part of our liturgy. And it shows up at various important intervals in Jewish life. So, Esa'enai is a, and this is a big psalm. That's a big deal. Esa'enai Lahodim. Which is precisely why it behooves us to understand what in heaven is David HaMelech saying. What did he add in verse 7? What did he add in verse 8 that he might not have known before? 
these are the things that bothered me, I make the assumption they probably will bother you as well. And I'm going to try, I'm going to try to discover and share a satisfactory answer. And of course the goal, the stated goal is to be able to understand first and foremost, what did David HaMelech actually say? What did he mean? What did he want to communicate to us? Not what I see in it, or what you see in it. It's not about us. It's not about how we appreciate it. It's about an objective truth. But the objective truth must then filter down, must then radiate into our own personal lives. Because if there's an objective truth that we discover that's not inspiring, uplifting, or shielding us, then how did the film speak to us? So in that order, seeking the objective truth, ultimately, I will make my best effort today to try to personalize this. And hopefully you'll take it personally too. Stay on, my friends. It's going to be an interesting journey. So where do you begin? How do you make sense out of the seeming riddles in which the Psalms speak? I'm predictable, you know. I just go back to the commentaries. I go to the commentaries. So what do the commentaries say? What do the foundational Rishonim who devoted so much of their lives to explaining Hashem's Torah to us, how did they see it? In their illuminated perspective, what was David HaMelech saying? I begin with the words of the Evan Ezra, Rabbi Avram Evan Ezra. Rabbi Ibn Ezra is one of the great Rishonim, a man who devoted himself to explaining the verses of Torah, one could argue perhaps on par with Rashi and Ranban, with Rashi and Nachmanides, although on this verse, Rashi is mum. He doesn't say anything after having explained the opening part of Psalm 121, and that Ramban never wrote anything on the tilim. So we're going to go to Ibn Ezra, Radak, Rabbeinu David Kimchi. We're going to take a look at the Mitsudos David and see what some of the other ancillary Mepharshim, the Rishonim, say as they try to piece this together and solve the mystery. So the Ibn Ezra says, he transcribes the words, Hashem, God. And he says, so God, it's God who's going to guard you. God is going to guard you. And God's going to guard you, mikolra, from all evil. It doesn't say God's going to guard you from evil. It says God is going to guard you from all evil, mikol. All right. So what does that mean? Why does the psalmist have to add the word mikol? This is the way I understand what the Ibn Ezra is trying to say. I could be wrong, but it seems to me that he's not only explaining the word ra, or bad, or evil, which really requires no explanation, but rather God guarding you from all evil. What's the all? What's the inclusive nature of that statement? Ibn Ezra says, from evil that will befall a person. From 
there are things that threaten to engulf, inhibit, or maybe even harm us on the outside. And then there are things that threaten to eat us up from the inside. And many a wise person has said and observed that the enemies on the outside are easier to deal with than the enemy from within. This can be said sometimes in a national sense, in a deeper sense. Oftentimes we become our own worst enemy. But we really acknowledge that. What we tend to do is project outwards our issues, our problems, our insecurities, our failings become somebody else's fault. That kind of scapegoating is part of human nature from the very beginning. In fact, the first human being who was created by Hashem, his name was Adam. Shortly afterward, Hashem created the second human being, the new and improved version. Her name was Chava. Hashem gave Adam and Chava one commandment, one basic instruction that would tide them over the next couple of hours. They understood that they had a sacred duty and a calling to try to enable all of creation to recognize the Creator and the supremacy of Hashem. But the thing they were actually told to do, don't eat from that tree. You know the story. It's not a secret. Chava eats from the tree. Adam eats from the tree. And then Hashem confronts Adam. He says, Ayeko, so where are you? As Rashi, quoting our sages, explains, Lihikones, He's starting the conversation. So where are you, Adam? Have you done anything uh, strange lately? Anything we should talk about? Anything I need to know about, says God? Oh, no, no, Adam said, everything's great. But you know, that woman you gave me, she, she forced me to eat from the tree. And our sages tell us, and Rashi quotes this, here we see one of the ugliest parts of human nature. Not everybody else's nature, our nature. One of the ugliest parts of human nature is our willingness to deny goodness. In fact, we're almost wired to deny goodness. Instead of being appreciative, we become demanding. Instead of being thankful, we become belligerent. Who am I going to blame for my problems now? And this is unfortunately something that we have been contending with since the very beginning. My dear friends, I've said this before and I'll say it again, and you'll probably get tired of hearing it. But the reality is that human nature is not all sugar and spice. <laughs> There's a lot of filth and dirt, worms and bugs and centipedes that crawl 
in the heart, in the kishkas, in the essence of who we are. And the job that Hashem gives us is not to ignore our issues, not to sweep them under the carpet because that doesn't help anybody. Deal with your issues. We need to deal with our insecurities. We need to deal with our predisposition to be dishonest to ourselves and to others. Our proclivity to deny responsibility. Our fetish to blame somebody else for things that went wrong. It's all part of our human nature. Some of us have it in larger measure, some of it in smaller measure. Human nature is not supposed to be celebrated per se. Human nature is supposed to be engineered, modified. Nobody is born a mensch. Every one of us is born a selfish little creep. That's what a baby is. We don't like to hear that. We think of babies as these innocent little creatures, and they are innocent, but they're very selfish. They only think about themselves. The moment we become a little more mature, we start to become aware of others, and that's where our education begins. We were taught to think of others before ourselves. The greatest mensch, the most exemplary human being, is the person who can achieve transcendence of self, which in Judaism translates into selflessness, not obnoxious selfishness where I transcend my physicality and I go into some higher spiritual consciousness and now I'm conceited and obsessed with my transcendence, with my own achievements on a spiritual plateau. But the ultimate essence of Yiddishkeit is to be able to transcend self entirely. It shouldn't be about us. What do others require and need? And how can I be of assistance? Imagine we lived our lives like that. Imagine in every situation we ask the question, okay, forget about me. That's not, I'm not really important. I take life seriously, myself seriously. What can I do for others? Oh, by the way, we'd also be a lot happier if we lived that way. Because the more selfless people are, generally the more happy they are. Anger, frustration, it's all rooted in ego. How dare you speak to me that way? How dare they say at X, Y, and Z? It's not important. Don't personalize. Rise above it. Focus on the issues and deal with them. Simple as that. Ibn Ezra says, Hashem Yishmarcha Mikol Ra from all evil refers Sheyikrala Adam Michutz Ubifnim. The evil on the inside that follows the evil on the outside. Just maybe, I don't know. Just maybe, what the Ibn Ezra is telling us is that here it goes to Mikoldo. We tend to think of evil as something on the outside of us. And David HaMelech finishes with the words, my dear children, he says, Hashem Yishmarcho Mikoldo. Yeah, God will guard you from yourself, he'll save you from yourself. Yishmeres Nafshecha. He'll save your soul, so to speak. I found it so fascinating when I found that in the words of the Sephorno, this very idea seems to be emphasized. The Mitsudas of the Ibn Ezra simply says, Michutz Ubifnim. Now, interestingly, the Ibn Ezra adds, Mikol Ra says the Sephorno, 
from the heart, from the inclination that is called evil, from the emotional side, the perspective or dimension that inclines towards selfishness and self-gratification. The Sepharno says, if you want to better appreciate this, it could perhaps, perhaps be framed by the verse that's found in Deuteronomy 30, near the end of Chumash Devarim, Meshe Rabbeinu says that in the future, Umol Hashem God will, proverbially speaking, circumcise your heart. This is not a definition of a divine open heart surgery. It's a spiritual thing. Levavcha, the heart is the seat of emotions. Emotions are very selfish things. I like that because I like it, I want it, I'm drawn towards it. Yeah, but what if other people get harmed? Yeah, but I want it. I don't like that. What if somebody else really likes it? Well, I don't like it. It's not good for me. It's all about me, naturally. So that we should overcome that natural inclination. By and large, we will never transcend the notion of our selfishness or being concerned with number one entirely. We're never going to succeed. Most of us won't. Only the supremely righteous, the greatest men and women in millennia are able to rise above their own personal needs entirely. Very rare thing. Could be one in a generation. A tzaddik or tzidkarnas, a righteous man or woman is like that. Most of us will continue to tend with an, contend with an evil inclination. That's called the benini. That's called the in-betweener. You got a perfect scorecard. But there's a little voice inside you that keeps saying, what about me? How about me? What I need? What's in it for me? And you have to overcome, squash that voice. On occasion, you're fortunate enough to sublimate it, to redirect it. But as a rule, it is what it is. When Mashiach will come, oh, the world will change. Hashem will circumcise our hearts. He will transform our emotions no longer will we be selfish in nature. No longer will we think about what's in it for us. But instead, when our eyes will be open and we will see the presence of the Creator in the most manifest and profound way, everything will change. But that's in the future. So what does it mean, Hashem Yishmarcha? Hashem will guard you from your own evil, from your own selfishness from your own closed-mindedness, from your own self-imposed blindness or myopicity, from your inability to see beyond the minutia, the tiny little details that you're so obsessed with. So God will, God will guard us from this. That's big news, by the way. Big news. As they say, nisht, push it. That's French. Not really, it's not. It's Hebrew, Yiddish. It means it's not simple. It's not a simple thing. It's a very deep thing. And that then would be the meaning of David Amelok's opening words. I found it so interesting, furthermore, that the Alshech, Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech, in his commentary on film, Rabbi Meskel, he says that, you know, that evil on the outside, it's not mutually exclusive of the evil on the inside. 
Alshach makes the stunning claim. He says, Ein ki im It's not a thing that vexes, inhibits, or gets in your way. It's really our own sin. What does sin really mean? What is the essence of sin? The essence of sin is full-blown selfishness to the point that we are not prepared to do what is right and what is good because we're too obsessed with ourselves. The Alshir paraphrases the words of a fascinating story in the Gemara where there was a burrow who bit people and they died. The bite of this burrow seemed to be mortal, deathly. And then the sage came along and the burrow bit him and the burrow died. If my memory doesn't fail me, it was Rabbi Hanina Mendeza who said, Ein ha'oroid memes. It's not the burrow who kills. No, no, he says. It's achet memes. Maybe even on a literal level, this meant there was a certain toxicity within the person's own, own plasma that had a chemical reaction to whatever poison was in the burrow's mouth. The point is this. The evil on the outside can harm us because we haven't fixed things on the inside. And that may be a lot more difficult than dealing with our external problems. So David Melech promises us that Hashem is there to help us. That even though when we do an Aveda, when we violate the will of Hashem, when we give in to our own selfishness, then this breeds a stronger pull, a vortex that kind of sucks us down that garden path of evil. From every sin, from every kind of inappropriate behavior, there's a, a force, an angel, if you will, bad angel, that drags you down, pulls you into the direction with like a magnetic pull. Hashem will shield and protect us from this evil. It doesn't exonerate us. But you're not in it alone. And if we reach out to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and if we say, and if a Yid says, as we learned in our previous episodes, if a Yid says, I know that Ezri me'im Hashem, I am not so wise, I am not so righteous, I am not so high-minded or possessive of extraordinary self-discipline, but I'm wise enough to raise my eyes beyond the mountain and to know that ultimately it is Hashem who helps us, that if he appeals to Hashem to be saved from his own inner demons, then in turn that's what happens. This is, I think, what the Ibn Ezra is telling us. The Radak says, Yishmar Mikora. He says, all evil refers People or animals. That's the call. That's the gamut. That's the range. Ahaba Radak says, what is the meaning of Very interestingly, Ibn Ezra doesn't speak about it. What's, what's, what's guard your soul? Radak says, that you will not die of illness that comes from within. 
and if I may, leaning on the Sephardim and the Alshech, perhaps the illness that Radak Rabbeinu David Kimchi speaks of is not only the illness of physical malaise or malediction, but in fact, it refers to spiritual illness. Alshech says that clearly, openly. What's the difference between Bnei Adam and Chayas? Between people, between animals. Why is that the expression of Mikol, the range, the full gamut of evil? Libby I don't know, but it seems to me that people who do evil things to you make a choice. That's why they're held culpable. That's why we are held culpable. Because you make a choice. The animal doesn't make a choice per se. The tiger or lion who consumes its prey is not a bad or evil lion or tiger. That cute little dog who buries his nose in your lap and licks you with love is not really any better than the lion or tiger. It's just that lions and tigers are pre-programmed to see you as their lunch. And the little dog is pre-programmed to see you as a companion or a friend. So as a companion, it expresses love to you. Lion says, I'd love to eat you. He loves you. He loves himself. He wants lunch. But the dog isn't righteous or holy because animals don't make choices. And I understand you having a pet and your choice of that cute dog, not the ferocious lion. Wise choice. You wouldn't last very long otherwise. But understand that the love you're getting from that animal is not because of a choice the animal made, but rather because of its predisposition. The animal cannot be held culpable for having violently attacked. The animal is it's an animal. If anything, the person who owns the animal will be held culpable. If a dog acts out, we actually, from a Torah or a halacha perspective, would suggest that the owner has made the dog violent. And that's why it's predisposed to act out. Because these pets are so close to their owners that they actually start to reflect their owner's behavior. People can be bad. Animals can't be bad. A person might be prone to think, how can Hashem protect me from the person? The person wants to do something bad to me. Or, why would Hashem protect me from an animal? The animal isn't bad. He isn't evil. He's not Ra. The person is Ra. The person is evil. David HaMelech says Hashem protects you from all sorts of evil. The evil in which the person is a full partner and held culpable. The evil of an animal who isn't evil at all. It's just evil or bad for you. Hashem Yishmar Chomikoro. God protects you from any kind of evil. And here, my friends, we have to focus on a very important point that the Alter Rebbe makes in Tanya. He says that the meaning of the statement that our sages make, that a person who becomes infuriated, is as if 
he or she worshipped an idol. That's because it isn't the other person's behavior that's okay. It's Hashem ordained it. That doesn't exonerate them. They are responsible for their behavior. But as far as whatever was coming your way, Allah nizik nigzer. That was Hashem's decision. If Hashem wouldn't want it to come your way, no person would have been able to direct it your way. So real belief in Ashgacha Pratis, real belief in divine design, that Hashem choreographs everything, is being able to compartmentalize. To say at once, I believe this comes from Hashem, but you who chose to be evil will be held culpable. And Hashem promises, nobody escapes recompense. So Hashem Yishmarcho Mikoro, an evil that is external, that is internal, to the point of contagion or sickness, to the point of the real evil or the root source of our problems, which is turning our back on Hashem. Interestingly, the Mitzudah's David says nothing about this verse. So, if I may, let's suggest that that's what David HaMelech is saying in his closing verses. And then he adds, Hashem Yishmar Tseischa Uvayecha. God guards your going and your coming. Vivan Ezra says, Yishmar Tseischa. He says, Tseischa is when you go out to war. War is a terrible thing. Judaism does not have a term, Milchemet Kodesh, holy war. In fact, that is oxymoronic to the nth degree. It's anathema to a Jew to hear such words, to put holiness together with war. King David, David HaMelech himself, who yearned and pined to build the Beit HaMikdash, was not allowed by Hashem because he was a man of war. War can be a horrible necessity, but it's still horrible. And just as a doctor who has to amputate a limb, God forbid, in order to save somebody's life, is ultimately performing an act of kindness, but there's still an element of indifference, necessary indifference, cut off a person's leg. To go to war, Go to war is a terrible thing, sometimes a necessary thing. We pray that we shouldn't have to go to war. We pray that we shouldn't have to raise arms. For us in a utopian world, there would be no war. There would be no violence. That is how things will be when Mashiach will come. But war requires a going out. Tzeischa. Perhaps this is akin to the words of the Torah. Ki teitzei When you go out to war. And the novelty here is that Hashem Yishmar Tzeischa. Not only does God guard you when you go out into harm's way to prosecute a necessary battle, but furthermore, Gam Bivoyacha, even upon your return. Hashem guards you not only on the way out into the war theater, but Gam Bivoyacha. Says the Ezra, that this means the notion of 
Creating kind of a, a parallel between not only the going out, but even upon return. I can't tell you with certainty, but it would seem to me reasonable along the lines of what we've, we've talked about, along the lines of the Sepharno, along the lines of the Alshech, that Melchama can be understood not only as actual warfare, not only as an actual conflict, a battle, but forces that we have to lock horns with. It's a struggle. There are many struggles in life. And it would be much nicer if we didn't have to struggle. We have to struggle with difficult people, struggle with difficult circumstances, struggle with challenges we didn't ask for, we didn't want. But what's the option? Just to give in? Lay down and die? Let it just overwhelm, inundate, and kill you? It's not an option. So Hashem put us in that situation. If Hashem put us in that situation, then we have to know, Hashem, Yishmart Seischa, that God will guard your going. And it would seem to me, and I suggest this with tremendous humility, and I hope I prayed Hashem I'm not wrong, it would seem to me that we speak here not only about protecting our physical life, because if we go out to war and we win the battle physically, but we have returned with a depraved soul, a soul that is overwhelmed with violence and indifference to human suffering, then we have won the battle and we have lost the war. What do we go to war for? To physically stay alive? If it means sacrificing your soul, your humanity, your neshama, your menschlichkeit, your sensitivity, your kindness. After all, the essence of Torah is lasis shalom ba'ilum, to make peace in the world. The poster child for mitzvah is the concept of tzedakah, as the Talmud Yerushalmi copiously emphasizes time and again, as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya. So when a person goes out to war, he wants to be protected that even when we go out to war, it shouldn't ruin who I am on the inside. It should be something that's necessary to prosecute, but not that's who I become. I don't become a warrior. I don't become chas v'sholem, yodayim malayim domim, hands that are drenched with blood, but instead we remain a servant of Hashem. We remain humble. We remain sensitive. We remain spiritually seeking creatures. We remain those who are dedicated to Hashem's study of Torah and the fulfillments of its mitzvahs. That's our essence. That's why we went to war. Because somebody tried to take that away from us. The last time the Jewish people went to war successfully, I'm talking about antiquity, is the time of Hanukkah. Why did we go to war? Because we had no choice. Because they sought to strip us of every vestige of our spirituality. Who went to war? The Kohanim. A Kohen is called Ishalom. A Kohen is called the person of peace. It's the Kohen who's endowed with the ability to make peace and to bless us with peace. And yet the Hashmonoim, the most prominent of the Kohanim, led us to battle because there was no choice. Hashem Yishmer Tzeischa. David HaMelech promises not only will we come home from battle, we'll come home from the battle-like reality. And that's the Tzeischa Uvayecha. Not only do we not lose or darken our souls on the way out to war, but even upon return, we still 
understand that the greatest battle is within from our Yetzir Hara and that the realities of war are a necessary evil, so to speak, not a way of life. As is known, the famous teaching, Hakol, called Yaakov, Jacob's pursuit is the pursuit, the voice, the study of Torah, passionate prayer. Esau, Esau, glorifies violence, lionizes the jouster, the knight, the warrior. We lionize the person who excels at the debating table, so to speak, speaking words of Torah, seeking the truth of its holy messages. So this perhaps helps us understand and appreciate the deeper meaning. Even Ezra takes this in a little bit of a different direction. He sees this not as a personal thing, but rather he views this collectively. Pardon me, Radak. Radak says, it's not only la melchama, it's not only war. It's begalut. It's when the Jewish people are forced into exile. Yishmar, that we are shielded from the galut. And therefore, Hashem yishmar tzeischa. But however, when we leave the galut, when we come home, the coming of Mashiach, our souls will not be darkened, damaged by the Galut experience. In other words, Am Yisrael, that goes out to the proverbial battle, the battle against assimilation, the battle against indifference, the battle against the forces that wish to inundate and truncate our connection to Hashem, that battle, the battle of Galut. It's very interesting to note that the Me'iri, in his commentary, points out a seeming discrepancy. He follows the lines along the lines of what Radak says, perhaps it's the origin of Radak's words even, and he elucidates. He says, which this could also be a remez that when the Jewish people will leave Golos, Hashem is shielding them with clouds of glory and that's the meaning of Hashem Tzilcha. Hashem promises us Shmirat HaGuf to guard our physical, material welfare. Hashem promises us Shmirat HaNefesh to guard our soul, to guard our spirit. Says Rabbeinu Menachem Meiri Higdim Khan Hayatsi Alubiyah Here in Psalm 121 King David first speaks of Yetziah, of Igris, exit. And only after does he speak of a homecoming. However, he notes, 
In the words of the master prophet. Who is the master prophet? Who is the master of all prophets? What Rambam calls Rabbam shall call Hanavim, the mentor or teacher of all prophets. In the words of the master of all prophets, Higdim He first speaks about going out or coming home and only afterwards about going out. As he says in the Torah, Blessed are you in your homecoming. And blessed are you as you leave and journey forth. So he's dealing with the seeming discrepancy. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Did you come home first? Or did you leave home first? If you left home, you had to first come home. Says the Me'iri, The master of all prophets, his message, his prophecy was, Betchilas boyom la'oretz. Just at the cusp of their arrival in the land. Nibalehem albias oretz. He was speaking to a people in the Sinai Desert, a people who had not yet come home. Moshe Rabbeinu blessed them. He prophetically intoned, Baruch ato bevoyecha. Blessed will you be in your coming home. And then, Moshe Rabbeinu knew well that we would not last in Eretz Yisrael. He knew that we would have to be exiled from the Holy Land, and therefore he said, Blessed are you when you come to the land, and blessed are you when you have to be exiled from the land. Perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps. Perhaps Mi'iri here alludes to the inherent challenge of living in the land of Israel. The challenge that scared the scouts off to begin with. As the Alter Rebbe explains so in so a detailed manner in Lakota Teda, he says, why did they disobey Hashem? Because they felt that country and citizenship, that responsibility and economy, that administration, crime, protection, taxes, then the things that make up what we call the national experience, that these things would inundate and darken the souls of the Jewish people, that having plenty, material plenty, would cause would cause them to forget Hashem. They weren't wrong per se. Meshur Rabbeinu himself describes the Jewish people coming into land of Israel, inheriting all this goodness and booty and spoils. And he warned, Verom levavecha, your hearts will grow proud and stout. Vishachachta, you will forget. You will forget that Hashem Kecha, that is the Lord God, who it is Hashem who gives you the ability to make valor. 
the inherent dangers of nationalism, the inherent danger of living in a country, so to speak, of actualizing our Judaism in the sand, in the soil, in a specific geography. So why were they wrong? They were wrong because it's what Hashem wants, not what you want. Their vision wasn't entirely off. The decision was wrong. They should have prayed for the people. They should have blessed the people. They should have educated the people. They should have inspired the people. You don't make your own program. We're in Hashem's program. Hashem wanted us to go into Eretz Yisrael. And perhaps this is the deeper meaning of what the Me'idi says, Baruch You will come into the land of Israel. May all of the material plenty that you receive in no way harm your souls and spirits. May you remain devout, loyal, pious, God-conscious, and spiritually seeking Jews. And then, there's the dangers of Galut. The dangers of suffering and persecution. The dangers of demonization, dehumanization. The dangers of pogroms blood libels, genocides, the dangers of inquisition, and holy see in the end, Holocaust. And then there's the spiritual danger of Galut, being in a place in which we are welcomed rather than hunted down, a place in which we are appreciated rather than harmed or demonized, and yet there is the dangers of assimilation. Galut is not for the faint-hearted, my friends. This is a dangerous, difficult journey. So David HaMelech, so Moshe Rabbeinu, they blessed us. They blessed us to be able to come into Eretz Yisrael. Moshe Rabbeinu blessed us to be able to go into our Galut and not only to survive but to triumph. David HaMelech is speaking to a people already in the land of Israel. And so David HaMelech's first concern is what will happen when Am Yisrael leaves Eretz Yisrael? And how will they ever come home? My friends, do you know that in the seven short decades of the first Galut, the Jewish people assimilated to the point that there were more Jews intermarried than not? Do you know that Ezra had to select which Jewish people or families he allowed back into the Holy Land? Do you know that the sun almost set on us? We almost never returned. Do you know that no nation in antiquity was exiled and came home to reclaim its ancestral homeland? It never happened, not before and not after. Do you know that our sages built a cash-and-carry Judaism that would be durable enough to survive the onslaught of Galut in its various forms? And that's why we're still here? And that's why we never stopped yearning for the land of Israel? Do you know that the reason that the names of our months were Chodesh HaRishon, Chodesh HaSheni, Chodesh HaShlishi, the first month, the second month, the third month, etc., 
commemorated our exodus from the land of Egypt. But do you know that when the Jewish people came back into the land of Israel, we started to call the months Akkadian names or Persian names or Babylonian? Nisan Iyer, Sivan and Tammuz. Do you know why? Nachmanides tells us that's to recall the miracle of the proverbial homecoming. That we came home. Nobody else came home. Nobody else ever returned to their homeland. And that is perhaps a greater miracle than the Baruch Atta Bivoyecha was the bracha of Meish Rabbeinu B'tzeisecha. And David HaMelech extends this bracha and he says, Baruch Atta B'tzeisecha, and so indeed when you go out, may the force be with you. <laughs> may HaKadosh Baruch Hu shield and protect you. And then you will come home. When we come home with Mashiach, it will be me'ata v'yadaylam for all eternity. It's interesting to note that this commentary of the Me'iri is also cited by the Tehillah Ladavid, who says that he found an ancient manuscript in Hebrew, Aksav Yad Yashon Nation, a very old manuscript going back to the 10th century, attributed to the Yehuda HaChassid. And the verbiage is different than the Me'iri, but the content is the same. That Meisha Rabbeinu said, Baruch Atah and then Bitzay Secha, arrival, and then Igris. Whereas David HaMelech said it the other way around. Meisha Rabbeinu was blessing the people to finally enter the land of Israel. Remember, they had a 40-year delay. They were worried about going into the land of Israel and remaining pious and devout. In the days of David, they were in Eretz Yisrael. The fear was, could we be an eternal nation? Could we be exiled and still come home? David HaMelech shed a lot of tears over you and me. He prayed for our welfare and he prayed for our safe return. So he speaks on the Bnei Agoyla. He speaks about us. To further this idea that war is perhaps not simply about conflict or battle, Rabbeinu Yosef Chiyun maintained that it's not just about war, but the Poronies Habois Mimelchames. There's always misfortune. It's added challenges that come along with wars. Going to war. Coming from war. And he adds very interestingly the notion of when we're traveling, when we're going out, it's always a dangerous thing to do. The Tehillah Sashem emphasizes this idea of all highways have danger attached to them. And he says, God guards you There's dangers at home. There's dangers on the road. There's all these things that can harm us, subtract from who we are supposed to be. And how do we survive? When a Yid knows that Ezri, that my assistance, is from Hashem Yisbarach, 
So this, my dear friends, is how I understanding these verses. Very deep, very, very profound. It refers, it takes us into a whole new perspective of harm and being guarded or shielded from it. It makes us realize that for us to survive and to flourish intact, for us to maintain the spiritual equilibrium we were gifted at birth is no simple matter. In fact, in the commentary, Ben Basie, he suggests that Yitzia, Hashem Yishvar Tzeischa, refers to the very first journey we made down the birthing canal, exiting our mother's womb. And he says, in the evening, that refers to the dusk of life, when the terrestrial remains are laid to rest. Hashem Hashem guards us on the way out. Hashem guards us on the way home. And you and I, my friends, we have a job to do. This doesn't exonerate us from doing the very best we can. But at the same time, to do it with faith and confidence, with surety that HaKadosh Baruch Hu shields and protects us. And I want to end with a story. It's a story about, about a, a convert, a righteous convert. It's a story about how he found protection in his moment or hour of need. And perhaps it is our story. It is the story that makes us realize what we must do in order to bring that protection home. The Gemara, Mesech Zavidazara on page 11, right in the opening of the page, tells us a story of a man whose name was Unculus Barclonimus. Unculus Barclonimus, or according to another version of the Gemara, Unculus Barclonicus, by the way, Unculus is the Aramaic permutation of the Greek name Achilles. If he's Ben Clonicus, it seems that he may have been the nephew of the Caesar Titus, the evil monster who destroyed the base of Migdash in such a violent and merciless way. If it's Uncleus Bar Clonimus, it would refer not to Titus, but to Hadrian, another famous hater of the Jewish people. Hadrian is the one who cursed us by renaming the land of Judea, Palestine, a curse from which we still suffer today. At any rate, whether it was Hadrian or Titus, neither was particularly beloved for the Jewish people or loved us very much. They burned with a hatred for us and imagined to their chagrin their own nephew, a daughter's son, who was the equivalent of a PhD in 
language from Harvard or maybe University of Toronto. And he ends up becoming a Jew. Not happy. So he sent a troop of Roman soldiers to bring him home. And what happened? The Gemara says, He was able to draw their hearts with his interpretation of the scripture. He shared with them words of Torah and he dazzled them with Torah. And in the end, they were so taken by his words. The entire group of Roman soldiers actually converted to Judaism. Furious, he dispatched yet another group of soldiers, Abbasri after them. Amarlohu, the Caesar who understood what happened with his nephew's golden tongue and with his brilliance, he said, Don't speak a word about his faith. Don't get into any discussion about philosophy. Say nothing and bring him home. When they came and they supposedly apprehended him, Unculus or Achilles says to these Roman shoulders, Can I tell you it's just something? Just something nice. Not Torah, don't worry, not Judaism. So they said, all right, fine. He says, The person who is, uh, I guess, uh, some low-level kind of officer. He holds the lantern before his superior. Pifiura, the next level of of a senior officer, he holds it before the duksa, before the duke. Duksa, the duke, before hegemoina, before the leader, the magistrate. Hegemoina, lekoima, and the hegemoina, or the provincial governor, if you will, holds it before the Caesar. Koima minokat nure mikame inchi. Tell me, he says, does the Caesar ever carry a lantern for anybody? Does he ever illuminate anybody's way? Amri lay, they said, lay. No, of course not. Caesar doesn't do that. We're here to serve Caesar. Do you know that God held the lantern before his nation of Israel? For it is written, God led them. This is out of Egypt in the darkest of nights when Egypt was in hot pursuit. And God led them, it says, at night by a pillar of fire. And they were so taken by this idea that God himself led the people rather than the people running after God, the Geyer. And they all became converted. And what the deeper message of this is a subject really for another class. I think there's a tremendous amount of profundity that's encoded into these ideas. But let's just stick to the story. Because he finally sent a third and final group of crack troops. Speak to him about nothing. They were given orders. Nothing. When they apprehended him. The others, they were about to leave. The door. 
Ace of Yodele. Unkelis reached out and he put his hand on the mezuzah. Va'omerlohu. And he said to the soldiers, Hi, Mai. What's this? Omrulay, the soldier said, I don't know. Emil Anat, why don't you tell us what it is? Omarlohu, Uncle said, Minhoge Shalelam, it is the way of the world that a Melech of Adam, a king of flesh and blood, a mortal king, Yeshiv Bifnim, sits in his palace. Vavodov, Mishamar Esabachutz, and his servants guard him on the outside. Ve'ilo HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem is not like that. Avodov mi bifnim, his servants are on the inside. Almighty God, He is the one who shields them on the outside. Shanemar, for it is written, Psalm 121, verse 8. God guards your going and your coming for all eternity. The Gemara says, Yigayr, they were so taken by this message, they all converted to Judaism. Su basre. At this point, the Caesar gave up. And Unculus was left amongst the Jewish people, and he went on to author, at least according to most opinions, the most comprehensive translation of the Torah, the translation which we call till today Targum Unculus. So the Gemara is pretty clear. The Gemara indicates that this Hashem that this notion of Hashem guarding you is actually connected to the mezuzah. The mezuzah brings us that protection. So here's something interesting. The tour in Yeridea, in the section of Halacha called Yeridea, in chapter 200, in 85, Hilchus Mezuzah, the tour says, Habayis Nishmar Al Yoda. The Mezuzah protects the home. The home is protected by virtue of the Mezuzah. Kamashadar Shubapasak Hashem Shemrecha, as it is expounded in the verse Hashem Shemrecha. Interestingly, the Torah sees verse 8 as a continuation of the earlier psukim. And he says, Hashem Shem Recha, the Goimer, and he says, Melech Basa Vadam me Bifnim, Avadav Shem Nesai, Kori di Gemara Mesechas Avidazara, with slight permutation. It says, Va'atem Yeshenam Amitaschem. The king is being guarded on the outside. However, here you sleep in your bed. God's guarding you with And as such, says the tour, make sure you put the mezuzah within a hand's breadth of the outside, the entrance to the door. So that call habayas, if you put it near the outside, the whole home and all of its contents will be guarded by the mezuzah. Clearly, the mezuzah protects. The Torah is quick to point out in Kol Mokim Le'ehei Kavonas 
That's not why you fulfill the mitzvah of mezuzah. It's Hashem's commandment. But it is a necessary impact and effect of the mezuzah. The Bach, the Bayez Chodesh in his commentary, goes on to say, he says, not only is there this notion of length of days, but furthermore that the house is guarded by the mezuzah. And he speaks about the difference between length of days and how the notion of a person's house is guarded and why that's superior. He quotes our Gemara and he says this, not only does Hashem give reward for this mitzvah, He gives reward for every mitzvah, which is Arichas Yomim. Days are lengthened. But He says, furthermore, this mitzvah is intrinsically one of protection. Not as a reward. But by dint of the mitzvah itself, nishmer mi bayis mikol hezek, the home is guarded from any kind of harm. Whereas the other mitzvahs, Hashem of course is trustworthy in recompense. He always, so to speak, remunerates. But the mitzvah itself doesn't shield us. But this mitzvah, there's hanas, there's revach haguf, there's a virtue if you will, a prophet in the mitzvah itself. And that is, Shabbayis Nishmal Yoda, that the home is guarded by it. And that's in addition to the reward of a mitzvah. In other words, if we understand the words of the Bach, there's something intrinsic about a mezuzah that brings about protection. And of course, the home is not only about possessions. When we bless a young couple to build a home and edifice in Israel, we bless them not to have a beautiful home, many possessions alone, but rather that they should have a family, that they should raise children, that the ideas and ideals that have kept our people throughout the ages should live and burn brightly within the environs of the home that they will create. The home is the family. The home is the eternity of the Jewish people. And our mezuzah protects it. And so, the mezuzah's essence brings about this notion it has a protective function. As we said, it's not why we do the mitzvah. But we must know that when we do the mitzvah, we actualize this verse. The Rebbe said that in today's day and age, where Jewish people face so many dangers in so many places, the best thing that we could do is to try to ensure that every Jewish home has a mezuzah. Because if every Jewish home has a mezuzah on all the doorposts that require it, then that increases the protection of Am Yisrael wherever they may be. I want to conclude with a, a beautiful rumination in which the Rebbe speaks about the notion of mezuzah, offering protection. Contrasting it with other mitzvahs, and really, in a sense, bringing it all together. 
There's a statement which is made in the third section of the Zohar. It's found on page 263, side B. And this is what the Zohar says. Quote, Pekuda lemikva barnash mezuzah latare. It's a mitzvah, an instruction, a divine command to affix a mezuzah to our doors. The Zohar continues, lemeheve kol barnash natir so that all of the people connected to that home will be protected by God. When they leave and when they enter. And this is the secret. This is the matrix, the deeper meaning that God guards your going and your coming. And the Zohar finishes off, This is the level that is called guard. So that it should be found in its protection. That's what the Zohar says. So the Zohar seems to indicate that the mezuzah itself is called a protector, a shomer. But there are other mitzvahs, not only the mezuzah, that shemira, that protection seems attached to for the house. For example, there's a, a Gemara that says that a house that's filled with holy books, Torah books, also has protection. The Zohar, in fact, says that words of Torah serve to protect. It's fascinating to note that the Targum, and I don't know who wrote the Targum on Tehillim. I don't know if it's Uncleus. He says, Hashem yinter mifkach lepragmatio, God guards your going out to business. Uma'aloch l'me'asek, and coming back from your business. Be'oiraisa, you return to the Torah. In other words, the Targum seems to view this verse of going out and coming in as you come to shul in the morning and you daven and then you leave. And you get involved in worldliness. You'll come home in the evening. You'll check in with God, but will God be with you all along? The Torah will protect you, it seems. So the Rebbe quotes a number of different mitzvahs about which the notion of shemira, protection, seems to be spoken of. And the Rebbe says something fascinating. He says that there are two kinds of protection. The protection of a person themselves, and then the protection of one's milieu, inclusive of one's family and one's possessions. The orbit, your orbit of existence, your reality of life. Weber builds this exquisite structure with different cross-references and proofs. And he says, you must know that a home that is filled with books, words of Torah, serve to protect the individual. But the mezuzah offers a comprehensive protection for both body and soul. The Kolboy famously writes that the name on the mezuzah 
Shindalad Yud is an acronym for Shomer Dat Yisrael, the guardian of the faith, the religion of Israel. Elsewhere, the Rishonim writes Shomer Daltot Yisrael. There is no discrepancy. The mezuzah enables us to achieve that comprehensive protection, the protection of our body, the protection of our soul, the protection of the dangers that inundate from the outside, protection from the difficulties that emanate from within. And Hashem promises that we, the Jewish people, will weather the storm. Hashem promises that not only will we be blessed in the land of Israel, not only will He continue to guard us when we leave, but ultimately, that we will have that divine protection, that Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel, will live for eternity. The notion of Netzach Yisrael, the eternity of the Jewish people, shall never be put to lie. Not only the physical reality, not only a nation of flesh and blood, but that the soul and the spirit, the faith and religious fervor of the Jewish people will never disappear. And we will come home whole, protected, shielded by HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself with the coming of Mashiach, Bimheira Ubiyameinu, speedily. And in our days, May Atar Vyad Elam for all eternity. Thanks so much for joining today. I apologize about the weakness of my voice. I hope to get stronger and I hope to be able to continue to have the privilege to teach you Hashem's Torah. Have a beautiful day. And if you aren't subscribed yet, please do so. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Thanks.